turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 1, and we are continuing in verses 21 to 23, primarily verse 23. So let me read this again. Um, We took a break from this last week as we focused on baptism, and uh, now we return again for this final sermon on verse 23. Let me begin in verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray. We come to your word to hear your voice. We need you. We need your truth in our lives. We need our faith strengthened as we hear the word. We need our hearts sanctified, turned away from the sin which so easily entangles us, and pointed again, fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. And we pray that you will do this today through the preaching of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. So this is the third and final part in a sermon simply on verse 23, which is about the sufficiency of Christ to save you forever. All whom Christ saves, he saves forever. Or as as Paul puts it here in verse 23, he says, those who are now reconciled, they continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, by which he means not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. The faith of those whom God saves, it perseveres to the end. And Paul is putting this glorious truth before the Colossians because they've been told by some false teachers that something more than the gospel is needed and something better than Christ is required. And so Paul has declared Christ's supremacy over all things because he is God. He's supreme over the church, And he's firstborn from the dead. And for these reasons, he then assures them that Christ is sufficient to reconcile them to God and to save them forever. And as the reason Paul and the reason that Paul gives them is because when he saves you, he transforms you completely. The spirit of God regenerates you. He makes you a new creature in Christ with a new heart that walks in God's statutes and observes God's ordinances. And this is what we're going to focus on today. But as you recall, before looking at the Lord's power to save you forever, we we took some time to understand an important but a sobering truth, namely that faith can be false. And the first application that we looked at from this passage was to understand Faith can be false. And as clear as the Bible is about the characteristics of genuine saving faith, it's it's equally clear in warning that one's faith in God can be false. Jesus, as well as the apostles, knew that not everyone who says they are a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ are actually saved. And we learned from Jesus' own teaching three characteristics of false faith. It doesn't last. It can't always be discerned by others. 
And thirdly, false faith is characterized by lawlessness. Anyone whose profession of faith in Christ is accompanied by a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, whether it's known by others or whether it's carefully hidden, they're giving evidence of a faith that is false and therefore unable to save you on the last day. There should be no surprise to this. Such a faith is basically on par with the demons. You know, the demons know with greater conviction than any of us here that Jesus truly is the Son of God. They also know with absolute certainty that the events of the gospel truly happened, namely that Jesus died, he was buried, and then God raised him from the, from the grave. These truths cause them to tremble before God, but they don't repent of their evil. Even with all they know, the destiny of the demons is the lake of fire. And the same destiny awaits those who can raise their hand in church, who can sing praises to God in church with all their heart, but then turn around, go home, and use that same tongue to lie and to gossip and to slander and to blaspheme and to curse others. And with that that same hand, they pursue immorality and greed. And with that same heart, they hate their enemies, covet their neighbor's spouse and possessions. And then they show back up to church on Sunday the next week, do it all over again like they've been walking with Jesus all week long. See, the bottom line is if your life is characterized by unrepentant lawlessness, regardless of what you say you believe, you need to repent and you need to come to Christ. Regardless of whatever prayer you prayed or whenever it was that you were baptized or whoever it was who told you that Jesus doesn't have to be your Lord to be your Savior, see, the lawless life that you are living is evidence that you need to know that you are not a genuine follower of Christ. You are an imitator. You are an imposter. You profess to know Christ, but by your deeds you deny him. And your faith is false. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the second application, which is continue firm in your faith. This is more my application because Paul's not really telling them here to continue in the faith as much as he is is describing what those who are now reconciled will do. See, steadfast faith is the mark of the genuine believer. What makes this hard to understand, of course, is that word if, because it sounds like a condition. It It sounds to our ears like Paul is saying, you will be reconciled to God as long as you continue believing. Um, And this is, of course, why many say that your security as a believer is conditional. They believe that this statement of Paul's, it shows that a Christian's salvation is only secure as long as certain conditions are maintained, namely that they remain faithful until the very end. And the reason I disagree with this is because With this understanding of Paul's words, uh, of of what he says in verse 22, Paul doesn't say yet he he's not saying in verse 22 here, he's not saying he will reconcile you if indeed you continue in the faith. That would be the condition upon um, reconciliation if you continue. But he's put it in the past tense. He's not saying 
um, Paul is not saying continuing in the faith is what reconciles you or justifies you or saves you. He's addressing those who are presently reconciled, justified, and saved. He says, yet he has now, meaning presently you are reconciled. And he did this in the past. It's done. It's complete. In verse chapter 2, verse 10, he refers to these same people that he's writing to. He calls up your complete in Christ. That means that their perseverance in their faith, it's the proof that their faith in Christ is genuine. He says, continuing in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, is evidence that their conversion and their commitment to Christ is genuine. I was going to insert a whole section here on the conditions of the, of the if statement in the Greek. This is a first-class condition. It's, take, it's taking something to be true and all this. It just got a little deep and into the weeds, and I thought, you know, I don't think that'll be too edifying at this moment. But that's another, it's, another, it's another way by which we can understand that that if here is not meant to be a condition of salvation. It's stating something that's it's true. It could be translated since you continue, because you continue. Now, likewise, one who fails to persevere in their faith and moves away from the hope of the gospel and abandons their commitment to Christ, they're proving something. They're proving that their profession and faith in Jesus was false from the very beginning. See, from the standpoint, as we looked, we looked at the parable of the soils, of the, so, of the soils, and while we were there, we, uh, there was some, we, we recognized that there's some measure a visible behavior that resembled that of one who was a genuine follower of Christ, like the second and the third soils. Picture this. Um, but what was it that happened, at least in the third soil? The, the, the pressures and the pleasures of the world, they, they choked out and they put an end to this behavior. The personal sacrifices of following Christ, they became too great. The rewards, too little. And so they left. Now, did they lose their salvation? Did they forsake Christ and then become unsaved? No. Like the, fourth, like the third versus the fourth soil, the fruit of salvation was never produced in them in the first place. What looked like the evidence of salvation in the form of, let's say, going to church or being baptized or reading the Bible, or speaking about God, and, and growing in the knowledge of God and the Bible, it was, sadly, it was nothing more than the external behaviors of Christianity that anyone can do in their own strength. It was never behavior that resulted from being born again by the Spirit. Steadfast faith is the mark of the genuine believer, and that means it perseveres Perseveres through seasons of doubt that we all face. Remember, we looked at the Apostle Paul. He, he was perplexed at times, wondering why God was allowing him to suffer. I'm out here ministering for you, God. Why are you allowing me to suffer? He was perplexed by it. We saw John the Baptist right before he was being, going to be executed. He's like, can you please ask Jesus if he's really the one or if we're supposed to wait for another? Even John the Baptist doubted after proclaiming, there's the, son, there's the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And yet they persevered in their trust in God. See, Christ's sheep, as he tells us in John 10, 27, they hear his voice and they follow him. But why do Christ's 
sheep follow. Why do Christians continue firm in the faith? And this is the question that I want to answer this morning. The reason that Christians continue following Christ is because it is their nature to do so. See, as a result of the Spirit's work of regeneration, our natures have been permanently and pervasively changed such that we want to follow. We want to follow Him. And this then leads us to our third and our final application from this text. And that is rejoice in the Spirit's transforming power. Rejoice in the Spirit's transforming power. I want to show you that Paul is explaining how the one who is reconciled completely by faith in Christ and His atoning death will continue in the faith, never moved away from the hope of the gospel. The believer will continue because as it says here in verse 23, his faith is firmly established. And in saying that, Paul is pointing to the permanent and radical transformation of the believer's nature by the Spirit through the new birth. Regeneration. And the result is that he or she continues steadfast in the faith. But before I show you this, I want to set the stage. I want to set the stage by looking at a few key aspects of regeneration. What I'm sharing with you comes from what I was taught back when I was in our previous church under my pastor, Steve Fernandez. Uh, he preached on this topic. Was We were blessed by that preaching. I was blessed by it. And he even wrote a little pamphlet called Once Saved, Always Changed. And, and for those few of you who, who remember that, it, it, was, it was wonderful to see this laid out for us from Scripture. This, this little pamphlet is actually back in our fellowship hall there in the little corner back there in the book. It's called Once Saved, Always Changed. And I want to show you first that regeneration is crucial because of the nature of salvation and grace. Regeneration is crucial because of the nature of salvation and grace. And then after that, I want to show you that due to man's depravity, well, regeneration is absolutely necessary. And then I want to show you what regeneration does. It powerfully overcomes man's depravity and permanently establishes a man's faith. That last point being what I think Paul is pointing to. That's the link here to verse 23, this idea of it being permanently established. So first, we need to see from the Bible standpoint that the crucial nature of the Spirit's work in saving us. And I, and I want to show you first that, that regeneration is crucial because of the nature of salvation and grace. Regeneration is crucial because of the nature of salvation and grace. So nothing makes this clearer than actually the text that we read this morning um, in, from Scripture, uh, uh, John chapter 3. And the new birth and what I was commenting to Pat, I said, wow, I'm reading this morning and I'm preaching. And that was by schedule. So this, this is the providence of God that just the two came together. John chapter three being the next verse we're reading and me preaching all of these truths that flow out of what Jesus says in John chapter three. That was just a little added blessing here that that we're read. That was our text. I didn't choose that text. God chose the text. The first thing that Jesus makes absolutely clear is that, first of all, salvation requires regeneration. Salvation requires regeneration. 
Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He, he was a ruler of the Jews by Jesus, uh, by the Bible's definition. He came to Jesus, as we know, privately one night. Jesus knew that Nicodemus trusted in his own righteousness as the basis of his standing with God. So Jesus hit him with a one-two punch. If you're in John chapter 3, feel free to turn there. We'll, we'll glance down, not a whole lot, but, but uh, you're free to look there. Jesus hits him with this one-two punch. The first punch is John chapter 3, uh, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he follows with a right hook in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this idea of to see, well, it involves meaning it's comprehension. Understanding is what is in view. And then he says to enter, to enter the kingdom, to see the kingdom, then to enter the kingdom. That involves uh, access to and enjoyment of. And so what what is Christ saying here to Nicodemus? Both statements emphasize the same point. No one will be saved unless God intervenes and recreates them through a new birth. Jesus is talking about heaven and hell here. So it's in connection with regeneration. You can't see, you can't enter the kingdom of God apart from this birth. And so the consequences here are steep. And so given that, that, that no one is saved apart from being born again, here's the very important question. Does regeneration impart New life alongside an old nature, which may or may not lead to a change in behavior. Or does regeneration impart new life alongside a new nature that results in a transformed life? Which is it? It's one or the other. It can't be both. Regeneration either makes change possible or it makes staying the same impossible. Let me say that again. Regeneration either makes change possible, meaning maybe, maybe not, or it makes staying the same impossible. And I think that's what the scriptures teach. You can't stay the same. You won't stay the same. You don't want to stay the same because your nature has been renewed. It's been changed by the work of the Spirit. Listen to the Apostle John. He says this in 1 John 2, verses 4 and 5. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But John's not a name caller. He's trying to bring a truth forward here. Namely, the truth is not in you if you say, I've come to know him, but you're not keeping his commandments. As I've shown you, we've looked at this in the two previous sermons. Continual disobedience, which is what he's aiming at here, not obeying God's commandments. This doesn't mean you never break a commandment ever. It's talking about a lifestyle. Continual disobedience, or as, as Jesus said in Matthew, right? Practicing lawlessness. What is that evidence of? It's evidence of a false faith. Jesus says, I never knew you. Despite what assurances may have been given to someone about his or her salvation... It isn't warranted if you've continued on in disobedience. 
John contrasts the one who is deluded here, this one who says, I've known him, but I'm not keeping his commands, right? He contrasts that with the one who can have assurance that he truly is in Christ. He goes on to say in 1 John 2, he says, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. John's testimony, as well as the rest of Scripture, is that regeneration actually breaks the bondage and the mastery of sin in a person such that the direction of their life, it's now away from sin and self and it's towards God and it's towards holiness. So so what does a wrong understanding of regeneration mean for the professing believer who, as John says, doesn't keep his commandments as a way of life? It's what they practice. What does it mean? What does it lead to? It leads to a false assurance. They're holding to a right belief. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He rose from the grave. And they sincerely believe this. And because they believe this, they believe they've come to know Christ. They even minister in His name. But John says, wait. Wait. You're a liar and the truth is not in you. How can you say that, John? The evidence is in their self-deception. The evidence of their lost condition. It's in their life's testimony towards their sin. They don't keep His commands. They don't walk in His ways. A wrong view of regeneration is what leads to a wrong view of salvation. It says, I can pray a prayer and get saved and I can live however I want. The Bible doesn't support that. It does not support that. Jesus is warning you if that's your life. I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. I'm going to heaven. Why are you continuing to live in sin? Why are you acting as if sin doesn't matter to God? Why are you not repenting of your sin? It's because you have no power. It's because your nature hasn't been changed. You you went through motions, but there was no spirit behind it. The spirit of God didn't change your heart. But not only does salvation require regeneration, grace requires it. Grace requires uh, regeneration. This is the second point here. Grace requires regeneration. Regeneration's role in salvation, it destroys any attempt at a works-based righteousness. See, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus was steeped in his law-keeping as the basis for his righteous standing before God. He was the teacher of Israel. And so his righteous works, well, they surely guaranteed him favor with God. And yet Jesus totally discredits his efforts. Christ's words to him, they are a sweeping rejection of his entire life of law keeping. Nicodemus, as well as the other Pharisees, they evaluated themselves externally, giving no concern to his heart to their thoughts. And Jesus is showing that apart from an inner renewal by the Spirit in regeneration, there is no entering heaven. His heart is still corrupted. It's unrenewed. And we see the same idea from the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews 12.14, he says, Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See, the only kind of sanctification that can be pursued... That's a practical holiness. I can't pursue positional holiness. 
That comes from Christ. He gives me his righteousness so that I can stand before God. That's positional holiness. What can I pursue? Practical holiness. The only way uh, Hebrews is saying that without a growth and a pursuit of practical holiness, and that is evident in your life as obeying God's commands, he says, without that, there's no seeing the Lord. And so when it comes to salvation, man's need is not just to have the guilt of his sin removed. He needs his nature transformed so that he can pursue a practical righteousness. And this pursuit after holiness, it's the inevitable result of what Paul called the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit in Titus 3.5. That means that when it comes to salvation, Christ says our law-keeping counts for nothing. Our good works, they count for nothing. The only thing that counts is a renewed heart. And as Nicodemus makes clear in his response, this is completely beyond the capacity of man. He said, Jesus says, you must be born again. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? It's beyond him. He can't do this. This emphasizes what the scriptures teach. That salvation is possible by God's power alone. It's by grace. It's not by works. It's through faith. And however, where there is faith, there is regeneration. And where there is regeneration, there is new life that follows. First John 3, 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his, his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. As I said in previous sermons, you know, John speaks starkly here. And sometimes that unnerves us. It's like, I sin. Does that mean I'm not born of God? No, that's not the point of the context of what John is saying. And I've said this in previous sermons that Christians can and they do sin even grievously at times. Sin, sin is not the issue per se, but making it a practice meaning an unbroken pattern of sin and rebellion and a steady disregard for holiness in one who professes to be a Christian. To casually assume a person is saved, even though their life reflects what Scripture teaches about, the, uh, about uh, even though their life reflect, reflects no pursuit of holiness, but the, instead the practicing of sin, that just ignores It ignores what Scripture teaches about the work of regeneration in salvation. So with the the crucial nature of regeneration in mind, I want to show you secondly. Here's my second main application. Regeneration is necessary due to man's depravity. Regeneration is necessary due to man's depravity. First, the Scriptures are clear that man's nature is depraved. Man is born with a sin-corrupted nature, is depraved in his spiritual condition. After his sin with Bathsheba, David could see his willingness to sin. It's not just been sin's birth. It goes all the way back to, to conception. He says in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not talking about the act of conception. He's talking about the spiritual state of him when he was conceived. I was conceived in the sphere of sin. He was born with a disposition to evil and rebellion against God. And he's seen it over and over and over again. And then he saw it, wham, in the case of Bathsheba 
and Uriah, whom he killed, her husband. He's speaking about his depravity. Man's depravity is essentially a heart attitude, a disposition towards God. And that that heart attitude finds its primary expression in response to God's person and authority, that of defiance and self-will. Paul looked at Scripture, right? And then he, he, he went to Scripture and he amassed all these verses that he summarized together to describe mankind in Romans chapter 3. He says there's none righteous. There's not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. He's not exaggerating. He's, make, he's stating fact from other verses he's quoting. In the Old Testament. And this sinful disposition is pervasive. It's affecting all man's faculties. His will, his intellect, his emotions. And it doesn't mean that man is as evil as he could be. We know this. But that all his faculties are predisposed towards sin and against God. Man is a rebel from birth. Paul describes man's condition this way in Romans 8, verse 7. He says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. See, in his heart, man hates God. He may cloak it behind good deeds and religion. See, all you need to do to see This disposition of hatred and animosity and rebellion against God, all you need to see it is confront him with the claims of Christ, the authority of God, and you will see the true nature of man arise every time. The root of the problem, it has to do with man's heart, out of which flows all our motives, all our desires, all our thoughts. The Bible says that we have a heart of stone. It can't receive truth. It has no affection for God. Paul says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. John says this is why when Jesus came into the world, it hated him. The heart, right? This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. They love their sins, so they hated Jesus because he was the light. See, man's problem is that he has a hard, God-hating heart that he's powerless to change. The second reason regeneration is necessary is because man is powerless to change. Man is powerless to change. Sin has incapacitated him. It's left him spiritually helpless, is the term the scripture uses. Helpless. Helpless to save himself. Paul's summary description of man's spiritual state is Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's speaking of our spiritual condition, the moral being of our motives and will. He uses a corpse as a metaphor to show there is no spark of life in man. There's nothing there to revive. There's no ability in man to initiate or even participate in his own spiritual resurrection. Man has as much ability to initiate salvation as a corpse to do anything but lay there and rot 
not to be overly graphic. And in addition to being dead, he's spiritually blind. Paul says the gospel is veiled. It's veiled to the unbeliever because the devil has blinded their minds that they might not see the light of the gospel. You know, turning on a light in a room or turning up the light in a room does absolutely nothing for someone who's completely blind. It does absolutely nothing for them. And the same is true for an unbeliever's heart. Only the mercy of God operating in regeneration can bring life where there is only death. Ephesians 2, again, but God being rich in mercy when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And the means through which God demonstrates his power to save us, it's the preaching of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Through the preaching of the gospel, God calls the unbeliever to repent and to believe. Remember the parable of the wedding feast? Many were called. Many were invited. They were invited by the king. Called and invited by the king himself. But they refused to come. Jesus says of, the, of salvation, he says, many are called. But few are chosen. Those whom God has chosen, they're convicted. They're convicted by the ministry of the Holy Spirit who says that, that um, Jesus came into the world... The Spirit came into the world to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So it's the Spirit of God who opens their ears and their hearts to consider spiritual truths and their their need to repent, their need to turn to God. But conviction isn't enough, is it? Do you know people who have come under conviction and still turned away from God? So conviction is not enough. Something more is needed. Think of how many drunkards who, who know their drinking will eventually destroy them. And they know that they need to stop. They know that they deserve whatever you know, they're bringing upon themselves in terms of their life and their relationships and their health. and all. They know all this, but nonetheless, they don't stop. They can't give it up. What a picture of man who comes under conviction and says, gosh, I need to get right with God. And then just says, but that's for another day, like Festus did. With Paul, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. I need to really think about this. I don't know if I'm ready to come to Jesus yet. I don't know if I'm ready for this commitment to Christianity. I know my soul's on the line. I know heaven and hell are in the balance here, but I'm just not sure. I'll think about this some more. See, conviction is not enough. For Christ to be received, the heart has to be changed. Man will not receive what he by nature hates. You can give all the education you want to a person who hates snakes. You can say, you know, the snake is not really bad. It, it's not actually slimy. And, all the, and then you say, now here, touch the snake. And they'll be like, Ugh. but I've told you all this. Ugh. See, they need to be changed in their nature. Just because you educate them and tell them the gospel doesn't mean they change. It takes a work of change by the Spirit of God. Man's not going to change without that. He won't receive what he by nature hates. He loves his sin. And he will not come to the light. Why? Because he hates the light. The need is for a new heart. A heart that wants the light. That loves the light. 
And God must regenerate man's heart so that his will and his mind can and will receive Christ, resulting in saving faith. The gospel in God's word is the instrument and the Holy Spirit is the agent. But the new birth itself, it's totally the work of God, acting directly upon the person. Man is the passive recipient of God's sovereign, creative renewing of the heart. As John says, we are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.13. And, and that's what's even more amazing, is when we consider that this work of calling and conviction and regeneration and saving faith, it all began in eternity past. We step back in an amazement because he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we're floored by this. We're stunned. I, each step of the way, I felt all this. I felt the conviction. I, I, I knew my hatred for God, but yet he overcame it with love. And I chose him. And then I found out, well, before I chose him, he chose me. He chose me when I was helpless. He chose me when I hated him. He chose me when I didn't want anything to do him. That's why we sing these praises to him. We're amazed at His grace towards us. And so understanding that regeneration is necessary because of man's depravity, I want us to see the pervasive effect of the new birth upon the human heart. So my third point is that regeneration radically transforms man's nature. Regeneration radically transforms man's nature. First, I want you to see what God does when He saves someone. He fundamentally changes man's nature. This is, the, this is what he does. He changes you. I've already shown that Scripture teaches there's no ambiguity about a person who is saved. Their life is no longer characterized by the practice of lawlessness, but instead the pursuit of holiness. This is because regeneration results in a fundamental change in a person's nature. Here's how the Bible describes regeneration with these words. It's a washing it's a purification. It's a renewal. Listen to Peter. You can turn there if you'd like and see it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you've been born again. Not a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. See, the new birth is something by which you, were, you purified your souls. Paul says much the same thing when he refers to the former condition of those Christians who were, in, who were um, the Corinthians, who are now Christians, right? He says, of their city, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified. And he's talking about practical and personal change. The reason why they are now former thieves and former drunkards and so forth, it's because of the renewing, cleansing work of regeneration. It's this change. He says it plainly in Titus 3.5. I read this earlier. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So this change, it is pervasive. It involves the whole person. The inner man is purified, washed, 
renewed such that Paul can now say to the Christian, he he can say to you, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. See, they can presently live in the reality of what God did in the past. He created their new self and they can live righteously. The radical transformation of man's nature in salvation is something that God has promised. This is something he said that he would do. Second point here is that God promised inner renewal by his spirit. First of all, he fundamentally changes man's nature, but then we understand that this is a promise. This is the fulfillment of a promise. He's going to renew your inner nature by his spirit. That's what he promised. We see this. Look at Ezekiel 36. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. This transformation of the heart, it's the promise that God said would come with the new covenant. In verse 25 of Ezekiel 36, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. See, that's why John can say, if you don't keep his commandments, the truth is not in you. Because of this. He's using the analogy here of the sprinkling Water to convey the idea of cleansing of man's inner moral nature from moral filth to moral uprightness. This is what scripture says the new birth brings about a radical transformation of man's nature. And it leads to a life that's now characterized no longer by the practice of sin, but by the by obedience to God, pursuit of after holiness. But how do we see this? Back in our passage in Colossians 1.23. I said we'd get back there. So let me, let's jump back there. Colossians 1.23 and let's tie all this together. Colossians 1.23. All that was just to lead up to making this point now. That we have this understanding about regeneration. And secondly, not only what does this have to do with our verse, but what does this have to do with Christ saving you forever? Because that's the overall point here. We're rejoicing that, that, uh, that Christ is sufficient to save us forever. And so he's tying this all back in. I'm tying this all back in together. Now, obviously, I took a great deal of time here to explain what Scripture teaches about regeneration and the new birth. But let me explain why I did this. First of all, an insufficient, unbiblical view of regeneration, that's why people can think they're saved when they're actually not saved. The Bible makes it clear that salvation leads to a radically changed life. Not just a person with a Christian veneer over their lives, their unsaved, sinful lives. That's not a Christian. You can believe the right things about God, but remain unsaved. And the way that you know that's true of you is because you are unchanged. You may have made some changes externally to your life, like going to church, but internally, you're still the same person. You're pursuing the same sins before as you did before. The Spirit doesn't leave you as He finds you. 
Through regeneration, He radically transforms your nature. You have a past life. You used to pursue sin and you had no problem in doing it. Your only concern was really just getting caught. But see, now, because of the Spirit's work of regeneration, you want to live for Christ. It's hard. You still fail. But you know what? You can't enjoy sin anymore. You just can't. The Spirit has transformed your nature so that you no longer love your sin like you used to. Instead of hating the light, now you love the light. Instead of loving your sin, now you hate your sin. It still troubles you. You want to follow Christ and you fight against your sinful desires and now you can walk. You can pursue the Lord. You can walk with the Spirit in newness of life. So that's the first reason we went down that road with regeneration. The other reason that we looked at all of this is because it's the basis for your assurance. You can be assured that God has truly saved you. You can be assured that you will continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And this assurance is found, I think, in this phrase, firmly established. Firmly established. My final point about regeneration is that it permanently establishes man's faith. It permanently establishes man's faith. This phrase here in verse 23, firmly established, it's the word themelios, which it means to lay the foundation, to found firmly. And Jesus used this word in Matthew 7.25 when he said, And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. That's the same word. The house didn't fall because it was founded firmly on the rock. We see the same word used in Hebrews 11.10. It refers to Abraham's faith saying he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, in 123, in Colossians, the main verb here is continue in the faith. It's surrounded by some adjectival phrases and adjectives like established, steadfast, not moved away. So this word established... It's, it's a perfect passive participle. It's functioning as an adjective. The perfect, when, when something's in the perfect in the Greece, it, Greek, in the Greece, <laughs> in the Greek, it means that it's referring to something that happened in the past and that has ongoing results up to now. The passive voice, you know what passive means. It means you're sitting back, right? And this is a perfect passive, this word established. It's perfect. It has a past event that took place that's the, the effects are still up to today. But it's in the passive, meaning you didn't have anything to do with it. You didn't actively establish yourself. You were established. And so this phrase, firmly established, it can be expanded to say that a, a person continues in the faith having been firmly established and steadfast. You've been founded. You've been rooted by someone else. It's passive. Somebody else did this. This founding here, then, is the root of the new nature where the old heart of stone is removed 
And the new heart of flesh has been put in place. It's something done to us. It's not something that we do. It's passive and it's permanent. It's decisive. See, this is the new birth. And for this reason, you continue in your faith. You're firm. You're steadfast. You're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. We don't keep ourselves. We can't make ourselves persevere. Scripture makes it clear that it's Christ. It's Christ who enables and sustains us. He never lets you go. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's why Paul can say to believers in Rome, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's because Christ has hold of you and won't let you go. That's why you persevere. But what is also true is that the Spirit has caused you to be born again. And you have a radically renewed Nature such that you are permanently established now in your faith. And it's evidenced by how you live your life. You obey His commands. You walk with the Spirit, never perfectly. You still struggle with sin. But you've been freed in Christ, and you're free indeed, and you're walking in that freedom. And you will do so until the end, when Christ comes for you, or He raises you from the grave. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? God wants you to be secure in your faith, Christian. He wants you to know that He is sufficient to save you, no matter where you may be, how far you may think you are from God. He is sufficient. His arm is long enough and gracious enough to reach down into the yuckiest of mire to pull you out. He is sufficient to save. And once He saves you, He's sufficient to hold you and keep you forever. Because he changes you forever. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for encouraging us. And we do need this encouragement because of the sinners that we remain to be. You have, we don't have an old nature and a new nature competing. Your word is clear on that. We have a new nature. We've been set free. But sin constantly harasses us offers us these temptations, especially in these areas where we're already prone to wander. And so it discourages us and it makes us, it makes us doubt, makes us question. And sometimes we really need to question. We need to look at this and say, wait, wait, am I really yours, God? Is this the definition of my life, this sin? Or is this just a definition of my struggle with sin? A big difference. Encourage those who are yours, God. Strengthen them. And those who are not yours, but think they are, convict them. Show them that this is speaking to, about them. You are trying to open their eyes, trying, being in air quotes. You want them to see what you know. Mercifully bring them to faith in Christ. And for the unbeliever who know he's not saved, he's on the outside looking in, show them who Christ is. He's God. He's the Lord. It was proven by his works. It was proven by his deeds, by his teachings. And it was proven because he rose, God raised him from the grave. He is who he says he is, and he is the judge of the living and the dead. Bring these people to their knees before you so that you can graciously lift their head in salvation. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.